0: and welcome to Academics of PA. This is Bruce McDonald, and I have my fabulous co-host Zosie Schaefer with me today.
1: Hi, I'm so excited to be here and be a part of this podcast with the distinguished Graham Allison. Thanks so much for being here with us.
2: It's my honor to be with you. Should
1: we jump into questions?
2: Sure, let's
1: go for it. Dr. Allison, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're
2: what you're doing right now? I'm. Uh... A professor at Harvard where I've been for, it's hard to believe, but five decades. I'm uh, alive, alert, awake, uh, healthy, and I'm completely captivated by the challenge of the rise of China and how the U.S. can attempt to cope with it. I wrote a book uh, published now, almost three years ago, Destined for War, Can the U.S. and China Escape Thucydides Trap? I think it offers, I think, and it's come to be recognized to offer the best diagnosis of the predicament we face with a meteorically rising China challenging a colossal ruling US and the dangers that this creates, that Thucydides wrote about so brilliantly 2,500 years ago. The book looks at the last 500 years find six, 16, one-six, occasions when a rising power threatened to displace a major ruling power. Twelve of those cases ended in war, four of them in not war. So this book is not fatalistic or even pessimistic, but it rather tries to be realistic about the risk in the current challenge of a, the rise of China to the U.S. and the uh, possibility that this could lead to a catastrophic war, the real possibility, and the necessity, therefore, for imagination uh, in trying to cope with the situation. So since I sent the book to the publisher, the search I've been on is uh, for ways to escape Thucydides' trap. I'm in China every couple of months, and in Washington every week, talking to most everybody about the topic, in exploring, and searching, and looking. So I am still uh, puzzled about whether and how the US can find a viable strategy for meeting this challenge, but I'm somewhat encouraged by the fact that if we go back to the analogy of the period right after World War II, in February 1946, so this six months after the war. George Kennan wrote his famous long telegram, basically providing a diagnosis of the challenge that was going to be posed by a rising Soviet Union. And there was three or four years of confusion in Washington as people stumbled around looking for some way to develop what ultimately became the strategy for the U.S. in the Cold War. And we now celebrate the people who did that as wise men, and they were. And they created an amazing strategy, and we managed to pursue it for four decades and ultimately to a successful outcome in the Cold War. So it's not surprising that there's been no brilliant idea that's popped to any one head or certainly not to mine. I don't imagine that I have any you know, ability to do this better than others. Unfortunately, talking to people at the highest levels in both governments, there's certainly no monopoly of wisdom there. So this is a great opportunity for the whole community of scholarship. I'm sorry to give you a whole lecture on the subject, but I was working on it this morning. So the whole community to say, okay, so nobody has a monopoly on imagination and strategizing. Uh, so who's got a good idea?
1: Well, we are fascinated in your advocacy work and your work with go- directly with government. But why don't we jump back and why don't you tell us about um, how you came to the Academy and some of your early scholarship?
2: Well, I, uh, as I said to uh, Bruce uh, when he sent me the note, uh, normally I would, my secretary would say, well, how big is the footprint of the podcast? And then uh, probably I wouldn't have done this. But when she said, well, it was from NC State, I said, okay, I, I, I'm, a, I'm in favor of that. because I, I appreciate it. I'm a proud Tar Heel. Uh, I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina. My father went to NC State. My family was all educated. I mean, I went originally to Davidson. My brother went to Davidson. My sister went to Duke. Uh, so, uh, and I have probably, well, I certainly have more old friends uh, from my kindergarten, grade school, high school, you know, in Charlotte, or in, that, I, that I became friends with. Than from anywhere else, so I'm I'm very partial towards North Carolina, and I keep up with it as much as I can. My brother still lives in Charlotte, so in any case, that my background, I uh, had never. I mean, I, I didn't come from. My father didn't actually graduate from NC State. He went there, but he didn't graduate. So I didn't come from a family that put that much value on education. I certainly. Nobody in our family had been an academic. When I became a a professor here at Harvard, when I would go back to Charlotte to see my dad, he would often take me to the Kiwanis Club, and he would introduce me as his son, who he was proud of, but he had sent off to Harvard to be educated. And unfortunately, he never graduated, and he was now in the 34th grade. He never got a job, He just uh, <laughs> hanging around the same place. And as far as he could say, could tell not really doing much. Uh, uh, so he, he was a businessman and was wishful that I would have come back and become part of the, what was then the Allison Fence Company. So I, my career, I think, has been somewhat accidental, like I suspect almost all are. Uh, I had a good fortune to go to Davidson originally. For two years, and then to uh, transfer to Harvard, I had great teachers at Harvard, including Crane Brinton, a famous historian. I won a Marshall Scholarship and went two years to Oxford, where I studied analytic philosophy and almost almost became an analytic philosopher. I came back to Harvard, confused about what I would be likely to do, but uh, to the political science department, which at Harvard is called government because. At the time, there were a number of people in it who were interested in not just the academic discipline and political science, but also of you know in government. Uh, actually, my advisor when I arrived back here was Henry Kissinger. So we've been friends and colleagues ever since. He's just uh, turned uh, recently 96, and his mind is still alert, <laughs> alive, active. I'm going to see him next week. So uh, uh, I'd say a succession of extremely fortunate accidents and pieces of grace and good fortune. And one thing led to the other. And interestingly, I think in terms of the intellectual roots of my both interests and uh, strengths, if I hadn't... Been become seriously interested in analytic philosophy uh, and uh, works like Gilbert Ryle, who is a famous philosopher at Oxford who wrote The Concept of Mind, or, or Isaiah Berlin, Philip Strawson, or A.J. Eyre. I probably wouldn't have become as interested in the conceptualization or what ultimately became conceptual frameworks uh, for my book on the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, where uh, from an analytic philosopher's point of view, they make a big distinction between what John Austin called words and things. And things are things in the real world, and words are concepts we use for trying to refer to them. And, in that is a long you know that's a long trail, but the con- the notion that we see things through conceptual lenses that powerfully impact what we see and what we think is going on was actually one of the core ideas for in Wittgenstein, who was one of the uh, leading you know twentieth century analytic philosophers. so, that's probably too long an answer, but it was a set of twists and turns, a lot of accidents and good fortune. And uh, it's been a very rewarding career. I regard myself as extremely fortunate. And uh, so when I have uh, students, I try to encourage them to, you know, take full advantage of their opportunities. We had uh, Jim Mattis here uh, to talk about applied history uh, and wrestle a bit on Thursday. And it's it's a very interesting, I mean, just to the question of how careers evolve. He's almost, he and I are almost the same age. He was at some small college in Washington state that I had never heard of before I, you know, uh, before I prepared to, to have him as a visitor for the day. He was drafted to go to Vietnam. Uh, he never thought of going to the military before. It's not clear he actually graduated from college. There's a little ambiguity about that. But <laughs> so he's not an educated person, if you would take it in terms of his formal education. But in the Marines, they kept assigning him at every, and he he, he commanded troops at every level up to the highest. Uh, so at every level the in the Marine Corps, he would get a reading assignment of books that he had to read. And by the time, and I knew this separately, so he became fascinated by learning by reading. Remarkable <laughs> uh, discovery. And uh, by the time he uh, left Stanford, when well, he was a you know fellow out at Stanford before he went to, uh, to become Secretary of Defense, he had a library of 7,000 volumes. I know this from somebody else. And, this person was suspicious about this library because when he went to Stanford, he he said the only requirement he he lives very modestly. He said I have only one requirement: I need a place where I can have all my seven thousand books where I can see them, uh, or all my library where I can see them. So this guy, you know, looked in this library, pulled off a dozen of you know copies of books. Every one of them he had stuff written in, and you could ask him a question about Alexander the Great or about Giovanni or about the battle at way, or he has an extremely nuanced appreciation of the history and what actually happened. I mean, we had a session with a dozen professional historians here at Harvard with him on Thursday, and people were actually shocked by how much... I mean, Fred Lugaville has written the best, I think, single volume on the Vietnam War, and is recognized as a you know, great American historian of Vietnam. He was, his understanding of what went on in several cases was much advanced by Mattis, who not only from his own experience, but from from reading. So uh, we, there's a lot to be said for reading. And I think that for our students, I'm, in my class today, this afternoon, I'm giving them this wonderful email Mattis sent to a subordinate back in the U.S., in November 2003, from Iraq, so here's Mattis. He's in the command of a, you know, forces in Iraq that have just toppled Saddam. This guy's asked him a question. How in the world he has time to respond to an email? I don't know, but he writes him back a page-long email, explaining to him that he better do his reading because if he doesn't read, he's going to only be limited to his own personal experience. And if he's limited to his own personal experience, he's going to be sending men into battle to die unnecessarily.
0: If I can ask, what is your favorite book that you've read? Then, and if you were recommending a book to a PhD student as kind of being the one book that they really need to read, what would that book be?
2: Oh yikes! I would say that's too hard. Correct?
0: It is a hard question. I couldn't tell you my own answer. They should.
2: They should read. Uh, and they they should they they should go go back and read, if you want this for inspiration, the first volume of Edwin Morris's Teddy Roosevelt, because that's the person you can relate to. And it's a volume about him growing up before he's president. He's a Harvard student, blah, blah, blah. So Teddy Roosevelt read a book every day during his presidency. Do it again. Every day, he's being president, and he's reading a book. So, breathtaking. So, the notion that, oh, reading, oh, I read one book or something. uh, No, 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 get over it. Uh, Books are there to be read. Many of them are way too long. But if you don't have a mental library that encompasses a 100 books, I'd say you don't want to be in an academic You know, that's not your line of work. You should go do something else, and maybe more. Uh, Now, some people are blessed with a with a great you know memory of what they read. I read a lot, learn a lot, forget too much. Okay, that's one of my problems. But I would say if you haven't read Aristotle, if you haven't read the Federalist Papers, if you haven't read Thucydides, at least the first volume. If you haven't read Sun Tzu and Clausewitz, if you haven't read, so I, I probably, I can't, I, w- I would have to give you a longer list, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> I want to know, what's the name of the class you're teaching?
2: Modestly uh, uh, called Central Challenges of American National Security, uh, Strategy, and the Press and it uh, every week takes up another central challenge. The one for last week was uh, Russia, NATO, and the Baltics. It gives students a a little case of maybe five or 10 pages which takes the real world, so everything's very realistic, pushes it forward uh, to make it a little more complex, And then forces them to write a strategic options memo as if they were working for the president or the national security advisor or the secretary of state, offering three options for three strategic options for coping with the situation, whatever it is. And uh, actually, if your listeners are interested, uh, the case I gave to students on the China Challenge is up on the Belfer Center's website. If you just go to the Belfer Center website, contests on the China Challenge. And so it's exactly the case I gave to students in the course. And there's even a, a template of the strategic options memo. And there actually is a contest that we're running that will close uh, at Thanksgiving. And award, the prizes will be awarded before Christmas uh, for the best strategic options memo that uh, offers a proposed strategy for dealing with the China challenge. Wow. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing.
0: Yeah, no, we can certainly put a link to that in the description of the episode so that listeners can
2: find it. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. Because we're very. we've gotten a lot of entries, but we're interested in more. And Again, it's a open open uh, to whoever anybody has got a good idea. Uh, here's an opportunity. Oh,
0: that's awesome. I, I like how you have your class kind of set up with you know the material, but then it has the practical application of now you have to kind of come up with the solution and relay that solution back in a memo.
2: And in the in the reading for the class, they will then, for example, for the China case. They read a little Thucydides and a little from my book and a little from Kissinger and a little from so they read they read 150 pages of background relevant to the general topic, including theory where theory is relevant. But the theory then needs to you know they need to integrate the theory to whatever extent it's useful in trying to answer what's really a very practical question, which is in this hypothetical, Pompeo has said to you as his assistant, I don't think the strategy we're backing into makes sense to me. So you give me, if you have a better idea, write it down. Yeah,
0: I think it's one, I think the case sounds kind of interesting. And if nothing else, I'll read it just for my own kind of edification. But I think Thinking about the academic career, we often think about the idea that we want to have some kind of impact, but we treat the classroom as this very formal environment. And so kind of thinking about how to make that connection between what the theoretical ideas that we talk about are with the practical side of what the issues are actually going to be and how we can actually start to solve them is kind of interesting.
2: I think that uh, that obviously is easy or or is uh, appropriate enough in a professional school like the Kennedy School where, you know, most of the class are people that uh, have been in government, are going to government, aspire to be, you know, playing roles in this space. But in a class of 60, I take 10 undergraduates. The spaces are highly competed for, uh, but the, uh, so this is not a random selection of Harvard students. But it's very interesting how much more motivating something that is Got a practical application can be for undergraduates as opposed to just things in the abstract so I think as a general teaching method, especially in a period where students are more you know sort of so how does this work for me or how does it contribute to my skill set for jobs or otherwise I think that that is a it's a good g- generic and the, obviously the business school've been doing this for a long time right but there's even now some undergraduate courses at harvard that make use of case assignments for and i i would think in general in most any course in public administration i mean i'm not taking a public administration course for the you know for the theory of the case but so if i've got a problem of a personnel system or a problem of changing culture or a problem of budgeting or a problem of management, my theories ought to do some work in in helping me address it.
1: Your academic work has also focused on fairly relevant topics and sort of gone from the concrete, something that has happened, to the abstract, to theorizing. Can you talk about that approach in your
2: work? Thank you. That's a good question. So, One of the, I think, pieces of advice for for, uh, students growing up in this space is uh, hope that you have the good fortune to have some good teachers and mentors. There I've just been fantastically blessed. But I think when you find one or have one, then try to learn as much as you can and be as helpful as you can because then you'll learn more. So, one of the great uh, teachers here at the Kennedy School when we were building the school, that was one of my colleagues, but also somebody I was learning from since I was the young kid on the block, was a fellow named Howard Raifa, R A I F F A. He was one of the leading uh, students of game theory and decision theory. I'd been a professor at the business school and in the economics department, and then became part of the founding fathers of the public policy program at the Kennedy School. And Howard would always, so Howard who was a mathematician and a game theorist, and so did theory very, and he liked theory for fun, but basically he would always say, he got his best ideas from the frontiers of application. And another one of his sayings was, you know, I, I can't make this work in theory but I know it works in practice. So he would look at things in the real world and see how they worked and then try to see whether the theories he had developed or was developing would help illuminate them. And I think that uh, tension between practical applications and theories is an extremely healthy way to advance theory. So if the theory is not helping me clarify why this, you know, whatever personnel structure and and incentives and practices is failing and this other one is succeeding, well, it's probably not a very helpful theory. Uh, and if I look at the in both cases, they seem to be, quote, or at least they say they're applying or using this manual for whatever. But lo and behold, in this one is working, and this one's not. Maybe there's some other variables, you know, that the, that we haven't taken into account. Of. So I I I think actually the 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 relationship is a health, is a healthy one, and that in the academic disciplines in which these have become detached often uh, of i would say that's in the economic theory realm you see people just spinning stories for their own sake but that don't much connect anything and increasingly in the in the real world of practice people saying you know for you guys you know you've predicted and, uh eleven of the last two recessions. So you're now coming telling me you're predicting another recession. I don't I, I'm busy. I have a real job. So thank you very much. Uh, leave me alone.
1: <laughs> I think uh the listeners of our podcast probably know a lot of the events that you have written about, but maybe you could talk Uh, a little more specifically about some of those things that you saw in your early career that inspired you to write some of the works we all know? Well,
2: uh, one of the questions I think Bruce had sent was about how did you ever end up, uh, you know, in the defense or security focus. So Mm -hmm. I had arrived at Oxford in the fall of 1962. Uh, So I graduated in uh, whatever, June of 1962. So I get on a boat and arrive in Oxford in whatever, September, and in October, there's the Cuban Missile Crisis. And particularly from the a British press perspective, this looked like an occasion where, when the British wrote about it in a much more even-handed way, where some combination of crazy Soviets and crazy Americans were now going to blow up the world. And... It struck me that here I was, twenty-two years old. This is a bad idea. <laughs> you know, my, my life began pretty, pretty early in this in this odyssey. So, and talking to English friends about it, here we are, you know, just living in this little island, hopeless, helpless. It's all over our heads. Nothing for us to do. So, it made a very deep impression on me, uh, and. Uh, Then, fortunately, we survived. So I I became, I think, probably fascinated by it. And when I came back to Harvard in 1964 to become a graduate student, fortunately, I took a course from Richard Neustadt, who was a great student of presidential power. And Neustadt had been a consultant to the Kennedy administration had written for Kennedy the transition memo, and then Kennedy had read his presidential power book and held it up at, in Palm Beach or something and to the press. And so, as, as Neustadt said, was the best uh, book promoter a young political scientist ever had. Uh, and uh, Neustadt had a relationship with what well, was, beginning, was beginning the process of the question of whatever became ultimately the Institute of Politics and then the Kennedy School, so the family, the Kennedy family, including Bobby. So I became Neustadt's assistant and got to be able to talk to Bobby and uh, Mac Bundy, who had been the National Security Advisor, and McNamara, so had some ability to hear from people who had participated in this, what they thought was going on. And that one thing led to the other. So the Cuban Whistle Crisis, as a uh, iconic event in the story of the Cold War, I you know, became fascinated by. And then that became the case study for my book, Essence of Decision. So I think that was the, the, the nuclear thread which runs through my career and which remains a central part of my interest was that the nuclear arsenals that had been acquired by the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and certainly now today, I mean at the time of the missile Crisis, had there been a had this ended up in a nuclear war, which Kennedy thought, really thought, the chances were about one in three that would come out that way, one would have killed several hundred million people. So that's an event beyond, you know, history. And today, with the arsenals that the U.S. and the Soviets have, uh, or Russians and and uh, and the U.S. and now even the Chinese, well, it might succeed in killing everybody. So you could actually, right. you could imagine extinguishing life on Earth. Uh, so the whole idea is just crazy. So preventing a general nuclear war is a necessary condition for addressing any other issue, and therefore compelling in that regard. And I came to believe that, and I believe that today. Yeah.
1: That's an amazing story.
2: So, I was
0: about to ask, you know, given this kind of background, you've had a the kind of transition back and forth between the academic side of things and the practice side of things where you've actually been able to kind of be part of the conversation and kind of make a difference in a way that I think most of us kind of go into an academic career wanting to eventually have. So I think my kind of curiosity is how did you kind of get into the aspect of you know that practitioner with the academic side and how have you managed it over the years?
2: Uh, good question. I think, again, the, you know, the accidents of history, uh, we all maybe imagine that we plan out things but accidents or the you know, big, big, big component. So I think many academics, uh, uh, especially in practical subjects like, you know, public policy or in public administration, you know, they're not studying it for, the, for its artistry or, for, or uh, they're, it's not like studying just music for music theory. It's about uh, hoping to make the world a little bit better place. And if you can do that by uh, helping write something that clarifies a topic and allows people to make a wiser choice, you know, good. And if you have a chance to play a role in the process, that's a whole different set of challenges, but also great. And I think increasingly, we have a strange government uh, in which a huge number of people from outside go inside the government with changes to administration. I mean, unlike any other government, I think, in the world, not just the president and not just the cabinet officer, but the the deputy cabinet officer and the under-cabinet officer and the assistant cabinet officer, and now increasingly the deputy assistant. So way down the structure, there are opportunities for people to uh, to participate, and again, by again, good fortune of or the accident of history, Casper Weinberger was a big Harvard uh, fan. I was building the Kennedy School. I don't quite remember who brought him into our orbit, but somebody, and uh, he and I became friendly. So when he became secretary of defense when Reagan became president in 1981 he tried to get me to come and you know join him and the in the at the Pentagon I had become dean in 1977 and I was you know in the beginning of a building program with a with a plan that had been laid down and which I was committed to so I told him I couldn't do that and but I would come and see him from time to time because he he had been a very smart guy, a graduate of Harvard Law School, uh, he had been Reagan's budget director in California. So he had a very personal, close relationship with with Reagan, but he didn't know much about national security and defense, and appreciated having somebody who's you know interests those who were to. Just talk to candidly. Uh, And so we kept talking and then eventually I became on a part-time basis his special advisor. It was probably like in 83, 84, 85, 86 for three or four years where I would go and spend a day a week at the Pentagon even while I was deaning. And then a couple of months in the summer. And I found that extremely rewarding because mainly because of the personal relationship. I could work on any problem that he wanted me to work on. And if you were working with the authority of the secretary, you had you know, pretty broad swath. So that was a great opportunity. And then when I'm a Democrat, this because I came from North Carolina, when there were only Democrats in North Carolina, or at least that was the only thing I knew about in our family. So. Uh, When, And I had gotten to know Clinton somewhere or another. Uh, So when Clinton became president in 1993, on inauguration day, he said to me, uh, as we'd been talking before, I'd written something about the danger of loose nukes with the collapse of the Soviet Union. He said, I want you to go be my assistant secretary of defense responsible for all the nuclear weapons left outside of Russia. And uh, if uh, I want them all rounded up uh, securely and uh, ideally return to Russia or where we take them, but in any case, not in these other countries. And anytime any one of them explodes, that's going to be your ass. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great job. And so I basically had you know, one compelling cause every day when I would go to work. And uh, it became a, one of the big initiatives of the Clinton administration, and I think one of the great accomplishments of the, of the Clinton administration. There were lots and lots of people that worked on it. It would never have been possible without the nunn Luger legislation that Sam Nunn and Dick Luger, two great bipartisan congressional leaders, you know, did. It wouldn't have been possible without the president's buy-in completely and whatever, but in any case, that was a great job.
1: This is just a follow-up to that and something I'm really interested in, but bal- balancing that expertise with politics, right? And so recognizing that maybe you know what's best, but how do you work well with elected officials? How do you frame things specifically for them? What about your character or how you did that work? Do you feel um, in made politicians so excited to work with you so happy to work with you so comfortable working with
2: you well that's again a great question so uh, and i wish that so happy so grateful so <laughs> comfortable yeah. i hope that was an accurate description but not necessarily so one of the one of the things about people in the academy you know is a quote they don't suffer fools or something close quote. if you can't suffer fools you can't survive in washington so lots and lots of people go there, and I certainly made this mistake over and over, thinking that because I'm smarter than you are, I just tell you what it is and you do what I say. So what the answer is? That's not not correct, not correct. And uh, trying to understand the mores of the members of the Congress and of the parts of the military and the parts of the bureaucracy. So particularly for people that parachute in, oh I probably I should actually write this up sometime. You know the 99 uh, initial errors that you make when you parachute in, imagining that you know the answer and that you need to simply tell people that are working there, you know what's to be done. Most of them are well-meaning. Most of them are patriotic, most of them are capable. Most of them been working extremely hard, and the last thing they want is some smart ass that comes from wherever that says, "You know, this is an easy problem if you do it my way." You know, why don't we just do this, uh, and hopes that the logic of the thing will uh, will persuade them. So, I think uh, I learned that many, many. Uh, for- fortunately, I had consulted at defense. Oh, I my first summer as an intern at the Defense Department was in the when McNamara was Secretary of Defense. So this is back in like 1965 or 66, and I had been at RAND uh, in summers and so gotten to know more military and bureaucratic. I'd studied. This was actually an interesting case where, you know, I wrote a an essence of decision. I have a whole model too about. Organizational behavior, the behavior of professionals in organizations, and bureaucracy. And when I, I can't remember, yeah, in the Clinton administration, when I became so determined that we had to do something, and there was an urgency to not letting nuclear weapons in Ukraine come under the control of Ukraine. So it wasn't like you could, you know, have an infinitely long discussion of it, but on dozens of occasions, I seemed oblivious. I was oblivious to what I had written before about what were inherent standard operating procedures of the people that you were trying to get to do something differently. And, and I would, as an academic, be in a, uh, you know, in, I would have castigated any actor in the story who thought that by simply telling people, this is a dumb SOP and this is a smart SOP, do it the second way, that they would be a change agent. <laughs> so I'm afraid I I learned, and I think most of, most of us will learn a lot of through the School of Hard Knocks there. Uh, and we'll have some, uh, and maybe somebody is actually, I, I hadn't thought about this before, I mean, maybe somebody has written up the, you know, the first ten mistakes that that new, newbies uh, make and the first hundred mistakes with with illustrations. It would be it would be a good list because because people do it over and over. Somebody who's just recently gone to the administration I saw in Washington last week, and he was telling me some bizarre thing that happened in the department and how he had explained to people how bizarre it was. And I, I said to him, well, and how did they respond to that? And he said, they didn't even seem to understand. You know, that, uh, what he had. And I said, well, let me tell you the story about me at the Defense Department. So, uh, again, this is a long story, but I'll try to do the short of it. So we've, we've arrived at Defense in January 1993. Les Aspen is the Secretary of Defense. He's been a minor potentate in Congress as the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, so he's used to being able to give orders and you know, the people snap to and do whatever he says. So, and he's accustomed to having his calendar printed out in a particular way by a word program that he's had on his computer for you know ten years. But in the Pentagon, the Secretary of Defense's, computer is a hardwired system in which you cannot enter programs from outside. And the concern about that is for security, but also just bureaucracy. So Les is, can't make his schedule every day because he's accustomed to only reading it one way and he can't get the, can't get the schedule printed on his uh, computer. Uh, so I, smart ass as I am, say to his assistant, you know, this and his assistant says she's ordered the system to create some capacity for them to do this, but they've explained that the program that produces this calendar doesn't work with the wired system that they have. So I say to her, well, you know, there's this remarkable thing, it's called, uh, whatever, Office Depot, and there's one at Pentagon City, so you can tell your military system: here's a dollar or twenty twenty dollars. Get on the subway, go there, buy this program, bring it back, and you can figure out how to stick it into the computer. <laughs> so uh, she does this, and this becomes a security violation. <laughs> and, you, know, you can imagine the way this story goes from there. So the answer is: there's a lot of lot of easy mistakes to make.
0: You know, I, I'm laughing a little bit. A few years ago, I did a talk at the Naval Postgraduate School, and before I got there, they didn't tell me that I needed to have emailed my slides because I couldn't actually stick a thumb drive in. So it took probably about three hours for them to get permission. So when they stuck the thumb drive in to put my slides up on the screen, that it didn't actually shut the system down.
2: Right, exactly. Well, it's it, it just is a, a wonderful illustration, and mm-hmm. I wrote a book about this. How obvious should this to be to me? <laughs> extremely obvious the answer is was well, is it no so when you're when you're outraged by the outrageous consequences in your own particular case of a generic solution you should first you know remember that large organizations have to do generic solutions and then it, it may be that actually there's their system is dumb frequently it is now sometimes it's solving a different problem than you know than the one i want to solve
0: yeah, it never had occurred to me that the system itself has that as a protection. But on the other hand, you know, looking back, I'm very glad that it actually did and that it
2: continues to have that. Yeah, exactly. You wish that it had in the, uh, when they were doing their systems operators.
0: <laughs> well, I do want to ask a question in terms of kind of thinking back about your career. If a PhD student or a junior faculty was coming up and asking kind of what would... The one big piece of advice that you would give them, based off of your own experience, what would that advice be?
2: Well, again, each each career is extremely different, and I think people should recognize the accidental uh, the, the and serendipitous nature of things, and where they have an opportunity, try to take f- you know full advantage of it. But I think. In a world in which every all of us are completely inundated with information and essentially noise, so I'd say there's a avalanche of noise in all of our lives. That's increasing, and and the magnitude of it increases every year. So it's just impossible to get through hardly your emails, much less you know the news, much less the relevant articles in the magazine and much less of this and that. So I think to the extent that younger scholars can find their way to a good problem about which they have some insight or a good idea and write up something in a manner that is, uh, that, that clarifies the problem or makes a contribution. So When I'm looking at younger scholars now, if I find somebody that's written one good, short, clear piece that I can read, that actually adds something significant to the topic, I all of a sudden put them in a new category. So I've gotten to the stage of life where I have a half dozen research assistants that work for me on various topics. And the topics that I follow, mainly China, but others as well. And for articles, let's say, for example, in the recent foreign affairs or national interests that look of interest, potentially interesting to me, I give them first to a research assistant, and I ask. I, I, the assignment is simply called ADS, ADDS, A D D S question mark, and that. Uh, question is, does this article add anything to the sum of knowledge that's not well known, that I also know? And eighty percent of them come back no ads. And so that saves me a lot of time, (laughs) assuming that they do it that they do a good job. So I, I think that finding your way to a topic on which you think you can make a contribution and then producing, you know, something that really advances the topic and where you believe and where your advisor and your colleagues say, you know, this actually adds.
1: Well, we think this was just a wonderful conversation and we appreciate your insight greatly. We don't want to keep you any longer, although we feel like we could do this all day.
2: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm honored to be with you. I think this has been a very interesting conversation. you made me think of things that I hadn't thought about before. And I think actually uh, I'll look around and ask my research assistants to look around to see if anyone has written, you know, the top 10 or top 20 mistakes that uh, outsiders make when parachuting into, you know, into government. And if, you, if either of you know of any or find one, send it along. Uh,
0: if well, you if you find it yeah. there if you write
2: it let us know we'll have you back to talk about it. Okay, well I if I can I'm hoping not to write it but I'm hoping to find it. So <laughs> I'll I'll look and see. So thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you.